Today's episode is brought to you by A-Life Health. Managing IVF just got easier. Download the A-Life app today for easy-to-use test result tracking, medication and appointment reminders, and a timeline to prepare you for the next steps. Your IVF journey, all in one place. Now available on the Apple App Store. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I am here with my amazing, astonishing, beautiful, shining co-host, Dr. Carrie Vadiant from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. And Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. How are y'all doing? Doing great. Great to see you guys. Fantastic. Hey, Carrie, I have a question for you. So a couple months ago on this segment, we were talking about favorite book series. And mm-hmm. you recommended the Grisha series, which is mm-hmm. the same series that the Netflix series uh, Shadow and Bone is based on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm listening, and mm-hmm. I've I'm listened to the first book, which must end up being the first three seasons because, like, I like we got to the end of like the first season. Now I know like so much more. I'm like that has to be like three seasons later. Uh-huh. But there's this whole other storyline that's happening. Um, that has. So wait, wait, wait. Tell us, tell us what this, is this like. What kind of genre is this? So it's fantasy. Okay. Um, Grisha. So, so Grisha, they're they're kind of a a human that has some magical um oh. characteristics. Some okay. people can. Gotcha summon things. Some people can make wind blow. Some people can gotcha. do... They're called fabricators. They can make things. Okay. And then there's like the normal humans too. All right. <laughs> okay. So, but the in the in the TV series, there's this other um, like storyline that's paralleling that has to do with like this group of um, kind of swindlers. <laughs> And they're supposed to be coming and um in, in the TV series, they're they're supposed to be kidnapping one try or trying to kidnap or capture one of the main characters. Does and, and I know there's like a separate book series, but I thought they come into play like two years in the future. So did they just like create these people earlier on and this is all made up and those storylines aren't actually in the books? So what what I think you're describing is, so within the Grisha series, which uh, Lee Bardugo is the author. Mm-hmm. So there are, there's the trilogy. That's what Shadow and Bone. That's what I'm listening to right now. That's the first one. Then there's the second one, which is the Six of Crows, which is a duology. And then there's another duology that follows it that. Duology? It's yeah. like King of Scars or something like that. It's a pair of books. And so in when you read the books, those are all sequential. But what you're describing is they took that duology and put it, ah. ran it concurrently with the trilogy. And so there's, when I think about the books, I don't think there's anything beyond just character development that you've already heard about because they're two totally, totally separate storylines that occur within the same world. And there's a, a little bit of overlap with characters, but not very much. Mm-hmm. And so I could see how they run them simultaneously yeah. and and not have it screw anything up. 
Okay, so it's not that those characters come in in the book series. They don't come in later. It's just there's there's two parallel storylines. So I have to finish the trilogy and then finish the two duologies to be able to watch the first season and completely understand what's going on. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Okay, and so just you, just read them simultaneously, Susan. Just read the trilogy and the duology at the same time. I can. I listen to these on audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I could do. I could finish the first one of the trilogy. And maybe finish the first of the duology, and I would make it through the first season of the Netflix series. Yeah, you could do that. I I don't because their website was actually quite interesting because they were essentially like, you can start here, or you can start here, or you can start here. And I was like, this is the oddest thing I've ever seen. And so after I I've listened to this much, I'm like. Oh, that's the reason was because like it's all interwoven. Yeah. Like they're, they're characters that are gonna cross. So the the first three books and then those second two books. So the mm-hmm. Shadow and Bone and the Six of Crows series, you could read those simultaneously and not screw anything up. I think the third pair of books is after. You really kind of gotta read the first two to to be able to understand everything within that last two. Okay. Okay. Good deal. And I learned a new word, du- duology. I didn't duology. know that was a word. There you go. I learned it from, from this series. I didn't <laughs> before either. <laughs> well, thank you for clarifying for me. Yes, yes. It's deeply important to know the order of things. And I don't think we gave a single thing away, which is also excellent because it's it's a really good series. Like it's been it my is. most favorite stay up all night and read them kind of things that I have had in, I don't know how long. Because I watched the series I watched it with my son and it was one of those that it was like we were intrigued and we liked it, but we didn't know if we liked it or not. Like we wanted to keep on watching it because we wanted to know what happened next. Yep. And then it was like the end of the season and we're like, okay, now we have to watch it because we still are not completely convinced that we like it that much. (laughs) It kind of reminds me of Lost where you just like, you don't know what's going on, but you want to keep watching. Although I will say the ending of this is far more satisfying than Lost, which kind of made me want to throw something. Okay, (laughs) good, good. I like, I like good endings. So we've got a couple of questions today. So the first one is pretty short and to the point. Um, Will it harm implantation to take a hot bath five to six days after IUI? Probably not a hot bath. We worry about hot tubs and I don't know the temperature of a hot tub, but it's over a hundred, I know. So if you're in a hot tub, we worry that early on the neural tube is forming and that there can be a problem if your body, if you're in a really hot environment like a hot tub. So, you know, if you take a warm bath, it's probably going to be fine. Just don't get in a hot tub and hang out for a while. The goal is not to parboil your gametes. Right. That's right. I, I I would stay away from the hot bath. I mean, realistically, I, I mean, why take a chance? I mean, it's well, a bath. If you just if you don't have your abdomen covered, if you just have your bottom in the water and it's above your How belly. How many button. people are taking a hot bath without their belly covered? That would make me angry. <laughs> <laughs> that's like a tease. Well, but if you like baths, maybe just do that, you know? That's that's like a foot massage where you get like your second and third toes and that's it. all right what's our next question all right our next one is i've gone through two rounds of ivf the first resulted in only one pgta normal embryo and at my six weeks ultrasound i learned it was not a viable pregnancy the last round of ivf resulted in two pgta normal embryos after another fet we just had our six week ultrasound again and no heartbeat Of course, I am heartbroken, but I can't help but think towards the future. 
which is awesome. I'm glad you're thinking to the future. This has been this has been so hard. And with one embryo left, is there anything you would re- recommend in the early weeks of pregnancy other than progesterone injections and estrogen, which I have been taking both rounds? Are there other treatment methods in the early stages? I'm almost 40 with a BMI of 32. Could my weight be a factor? So we're always going to advocate, you know, being as healthy as possible, nutrition, exercise, all the rest of that. I did see an article recently that talked about how higher... Um, amounts of processed foods were more associated with miscarriages. And I don't I don't remember reading the article thoroughly enough to be able to really sort out, did they control for BMI? Did they control for all the other factors that can go along with a higher diet of processed foods? Like you don't have time or your stress level or your exercise level, your overall fitness, that that type of thing. So that is one thing that you can control um, is, is making sure your nutrition is good. Um, at this point with two two miscarriages essentially or biochemicals uh, i guess we're further than biochemical at this point but after euploid embryos i think it's worthy to do the rpl workup the recurrent pregnancy loss because we would typically expect decent success rates after the transfer of two euploid embryos and the fact that you've had pregnancies but they haven't stuck means that it's probably worthwhile to to do the testing to see, okay, do you need to be on aspirin? Do you need to be on Lovenox? Do you need to do XYZ that's a little bit different? So Carrie, what what are the basic parts of the RPL workup that you would recommend in this situation? So there is the um, antibody component, like the antiphospholipid antibodies, I think cardiolipin antibodies, that set of things, beta-2 glycoprotein. And then um, there's... There's a thrombophilia component, which when you look at the guidelines is not recommended. Um, Some people will do it anyway. I I don't find it really useful in the absence of a big history of personal blood clots. Like if you've had DVTs, PEs, whatever, that's different, but um, that's not really recommended. When I have talked with my embryologists about this topic, they have all said, get the karyotype too even though it's PGTA, because they have occasionally come back and seen smaller things. I'm torn about how effective- Balanced translocations, yeah. With translocations, particularly with the, the platform that the three of us use, which is a more advanced platform. So I don't know that I'm totally convinced of that. I don't think it will hurt. Like if you got $1,200 that you just are dying to spend, it's a blood draw. Now, when y'all are doing karyotypes, are y'all doing kind of the standard karyotype you order from your microarray? lab or are you doing microarrays? Yeah, we do microarrays. They pick up smaller. Yeah, they can pick up smaller changes. So make sure your doctor's doing microarray because it really picks up a lot more things than just a regular karyotype. The other thing I would add to that, if you listen to Bruce Lessie, who was on our show a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, um, he, in his study, he showed that if a patient has transferred two embryos and they either have an early loss or don't get pregnant, um, two embryos that are genetically normal, they have a higher risk of having this inflammatory marker BCL6. So you might want to consider, you know, asking your physician if they're able to do that by and just check and see if that's an issue. As far as weight, I mean, we know that once you get pregnant that um, preeclampsia is more prevalent and people that are heavier stillbirths more prevalent. So we know that it has some negative impacts on pregnancy. And so, you know, while we don't have, have a lot your best of- outcomes with a BMI less than 30 and that's right. not far from 32. So that's probably an equivalent of maybe 10 or 15 pounds. So I would encourage you to work on that. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. good. Very good. All right. So today we are going to talk a little bit about the dreaded DOR, our diminished ovarian reserve. And the question that everybody always asks, 
did I do something that made this happen? So we're going to talk a little bit about what DOR is and what are causes of DOR to answer that second part. Okay. So what is diminished ovarian reserve? What does this mean? It just means you have a lower egg quantity or quality than someone else, basically. How do we determine, what are different methods to determine if you have DOR? So one way is by doing your AFC or antral follicle count. This is the ultrasound that we typically do on the third day of your cycle to look at the ovaries and see how many of these itty bitty teeny tiny follicles are wanting to grow up and start the race to become the dominant follicle or the one that's going to ultimately lead to ovulation and a potential pregnancy. So typically in general, and these are all kind of general terms because it, it always comes down to where you are personally and you have to factor in your age and all of your medical history. But in general, we're looking for 10 to 20 eggs at that antral follicle count. And if you have less than that, then you're considered to be DOR. Now, there are shades of gray here because eight to nine is very different than a follicle count of one to two. Mm -hmm. um, and so the severity there is different. But that's that's one of the ways that we can determine DOR. And so you do have to factor in your age. You know, we're going to worry a little bit less about a 30-year-old with 10 follicles than we are a, you know, 40-year-old with 10 follicles because of the components of age that play into this and chromosomal stability. But, um, but that's this follicle count component of this in broad strokes. So what's another test that we can look at for ovarian reserve testing? So the other test that we use pretty commonly is called anti-mullerian hormone or AMH. It's a little, it's a hormone that's secreted by all the little tiny eggs in the ovary. And it's kind of one of the few tests that high numbers are good. So the higher the AMH, the better. And I think most of us would agree it's a little bit more um, objective than the antral follicle count because that can vary, fluctuate from cycle to cycle. We can get a lower antral follicle count, a false low count, <clears throat> Excuse me, if you're on birth control pills, like sometimes we'll see our egg donor patients come in or patients that are going to donate eggs to others and we forget to ask them and find out later they're on birth control. That can make the number look lower. But generally, we want a higher number. And it doesn't necessarily talk or suggest how good the quality of the egg is, but it's really truly more the number of eggs that your body makes. So when we're talking about quality, what test tends to be our favorite? So quality tends to be uh, FSH and estradiol levels. And these are done on the also done on the third day of your cycle. So um, y'all know how obsessive we are about, well, what was the first day of your last cycle? And okay, you're going to come in on this date and this date and this date based on that first date of your last cycle. Well, this is one of the reasons why. It's because we're looking at your FSH, which stands for follicle stimulating hormone. It's produced by the brain. And we're looking at your estradiol. Um, E2 is one of the shorthands for that. And it's produced by developing follicles in the ovary. When we look at this, look at this on day three, we want both of those levels to be low. Now, these levels normally, ordinarily, and should cycle up and down throughout the course of a 28-day cycle. So part of the reason we're kind of OCD about day three. Kinda. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're OCD. Um, this is not news to anybody on this call or listening. Um, the reason that we want to do it on day three is because at that point, we expect both of those levels to be low. Typically in FSH, less than eight, less than 10, depending on the the clinic and the doc. Um, and we want your estradiol to be less than 50, less than 70, also kind of dependent on the clinic and the doc. Um, in general, we want them to be low. And the reason is that means that both your brain and your ovaries are talking to each other in an inside voice. 
So I always tell people, think about this like when you were a kid and your mom was telling you to clean your room. The first time she asked, it was a very polite, civilized voice. Darling, dear child of mine, whom I love with all my heart, please go clean your room. The 85th time she asked, there may or may not have been (laughs) F-bombs in there and screaming at the top of her lungs, like, oh my God, do what I asked you to do. And and the brain and the ovaries are, are the same way. If one, the other, or both of those levels is really high, it means somebody's screaming. And that's not the goal. And it tells us there's probably a decreased quality because it is taking so much more effort to get to the same end or uh, the timing can be off of when this is supposed to be happening. And so that's what we're looking for there. So it's not, it's not like we can say, oh, your FSH is 11.3, therefore your quality is 33. 3.6%. It's not that precise in the same way that we can't say your AMH is 0.4, therefore you have 200, uh, 2,076 eggs left. Nothing is that precise. But it is a general gestalt from people who do this day in and day out of, well, crap, your FSH is 16. We got a problem. So yeah, I, would, I, would, go ahead, ahead. I would I would say for youngish patients, though, I don't typically order day three FSHs. Back in the days when we used to do Clomid challenge tests, we would find that if your FSH went up, you're, at that point, your your egg number was pretty low and you were it, there's there's not a great way to look sort of at an in-between. It's either kind of all or nothing. And so I think, you know, ultimately one of the best ways to look at quality, which, you know, it's not really a diagnostic test at all, but is to do IVF and to actually do genetic testing and really know which ones are genetically normal and which ones are genetically not normal, basically, to give you an idea of, you know, how well you'll get pregnant, basically. I, I still do FSHs on my younger patients, but I did I did want to mention I do too that um, IVF is not only therapeutic, but it's also diagnostic. So there are some people who are going to be have normal ovarian reserve testing that we just talked about, but they may be diagnosed with diminished ovarian reserve based on how their follicles in their eggs actually performed during the IVF process. So you may have a normal FSH and estradiol, you may have a normal AMH, you may have a normal antral follicle count, but if you're 28 years old and we have to use maximum dosages of medicines mm-hmm. to make you do what you yeah. need to do, or we see when egg and sperm are in a dish that your egg quality, the membranes are thick and tough and all these other things that our embryologists comment on, that there may be an ovarian reserve component at that point. Yeah. And I think what you're really saying is, you know, we can check a lot of numbers, we can do ultrasounds, but there's a lot more to quality of the egg than just hormones and, you know, the appearance and the number of your follicles. And that's what we really learn when we kind of put your eggs through the the rigors when they do IVF and just see how well your eggs fertilize and how well they develop. So one question that I know we all get is, can you tell me how many eggs I have left? No. Why not? Because they're microscopic. (laughs) Microscopic and nobody is going to take your ovary out, put it on a pathologist table, put it into... itty bitty like 0.1 millimeter sections to look under the microscope because that's really the only even reasonable way to get that. Oh, yeah. And I don't think that's reasonable. <laughs> yeah, well, let me not reasonable. How about accurate? Um, okay, do that. And even then, I mean, they're 3D objects. You're not going to get a good point. So no, nobody's going to take out your ovary into account because that's not going to help anybody. Right. Yeah, and, and realize even when women meet meet the age of menopause, that on average they have still about a thousand eggs. Yep. So even when they're co- completely putzing out on us, there, there's there's still this, a few there. 
All right. And the important point about that is in younger women, I think we've all seen this too, you know, as we've evolved from the time we first started doing AMHs, I don't know, like 10 years ago till now, you know, we first started looking at AMH when we got that in a 32-year-old, if we got a really low number in a 32-year-old, we kind of felt like, oh my gosh, she's acting like a 40-year-old. Well, in reality, she's really not because the quality, the genetics of the eggs for most of those women are really still the same as somebody in their early 30s, which means about 50% are normal, 50% are abnormal, but it's the actual number of eggs. They truly, when you see a lower AMH, that 32-year-old is different than the other 32-year-old. And truly, and we see this with IVF mostly, that the pool of eggs is lower. We don't get as many eggs in somebody that has a lower AMH, but the, the genetics of the eggs generally are good still. They still act like somebody in their early 30s if that's the age of the patient when she goes through IVF. So as reproductive endocrinologists, we would much rather fight a quantity battle than a quality battle. That's right. Any that's day. right. <laughs> That's right. Because, you know, young 30-year-olds that maybe maybe only get four or five eggs from them, they still have good progression and good development. And we still can end up with one or two normal ones, even in somebody that has a low egg number, if they're in their early 30s, because the egg is so much better at that age. So let's go to the second part of our question as to what are some causes of diminished ovarian reserve. So what's the number one cause of diminished ovarian reserve? Age. Age. And when does age play a part? It starts to decline, really. There's a really good study that was done, I don't know, it's probably... 10 years ago now where they showed I've had they had like 15,000 women in the study and they followed at every age at what the AMH was and generally they noted that about age 40 is where most women caught, crossed over the threshold and their AMH was below 1 above 40 or I, I, maybe I said that backwards if you're younger than 40 the number just continues to progressively dec- decline as a population and it, for an individual it's hard to know but 40 is about the age where it really starts to get abnormal beyond the age of 40 and that's that's in the bulk of patients. And so there's kind of two two things to consider in this. And when is just about everybody going to have a decreased ovarian reserve, which is after 40? And then when is when will you know about half the people have a decreased ovarian reserve, which is generally in your mid to late 30s, like 35, 36, somewhere in there. That's when we start that's seeing a bigger drop in that 36 to 37 age group. Yeah, yeah and it's not, a lot of variation. it's not guaranteed. Like there are going to be some people who come back with really stellar numbers, but there's going to be a much higher percentage than let's say your 30 year olds who are coming back with a lower percentage. And so that's part of the reason why 35 is a classically considered advanced reproductive age or advanced maternal age. It's not because because when you turn 35, you fall off a fertility cliff. <laughs> it is just a gradual decline that gets a mm-hmm. little bit steeper at 35 and gets quite a bit steeper at 40. Absolutely. And you know, the interesting illustration of this is too, and I had a patient similar, I've had a couple of patients like this recently who are over the age of 40, like 42, 43, and their AMH is really good. And we stimulated them and they did IVF and each of them had three or four embryos to test and none of them were normal. So it illustrates the point that AMH, they had great AMHs and we expect to get a lot of eggs and we hope we have a lot of embryos that we can test, but still... Even if you have three or four to test, it, you're, it's still difficult to outlast your age if you're 42 or 43 in terms of the chances of having a genetically normal embryo. Absolutely. Absolutely. So age, you know, there's there's nothing you can do about age. You're mm-hmm. here. You're here now. The best thing is for us to do things sooner than later. Okay. Because yep. time is not our friend. So other than age, what are some other things that can speed up the ovarian aging process? 
smoking is a biggie. Yeah. Smoking what? Well, cigarettes, but I'm sure smoking, I don't know about marijuana. I don't know that anybody knows about marijuana, but I know with cigarettes, if you smoke cigarettes, you know, you're much more likely to see 36, 37 year olds with low AMHs if they're smokers. And, and I would say if you are using any type of nicotine is what really actually matters. Yep. Nicotine is nicotine. It produces a byproduct called cottonine that actually ends up in the fluid that's surrounding your eggs. So you're essentially bathing your eggs in nicotine. Doesn't sound like such a great idea. And, you know, it, having ovarian reserve issues is a big deal. It, it, I mean, this is actually a good thing for us to talk about. Why, why is having diminished ovarian reserve at one point in time a bad thing? Makes it harder for us to ultimately get what we're looking for. I mean, we are playing a numbers game. Are we, are we going to get any more eggs? Nope. Born with what you got. Yep. No regeneration that we're aware of at this point in time. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay, so other than nicotine use, what are some other things that can cause ovarian aging? Chemotherapy. Chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is generally something that nobody has any control over because mm-hmm. nobody voluntarily says, hey, it's Saturday night. Let's go do chemo. Um, <laughs> yeah. That does not happen. And so we are always grateful that people have had the chemo that they have because it means that they are still here with us today to have Absolutely. a conversation about it. Um, and so it is something that's really difficult. We do typically want to get somebody a minimum of a year out after their last dose of chemo before we really start testing. Um, And I think a lot of us prefer a little bit further. The oncologists oftentimes prefer a little bit further um, Mm -hmm. because that means that there's a little bit more stability going on um, before we start doing stuff. But, you know, they're not all chemotherapy agents are created equal. There are some that are just absolutely terrors on the ovaries. And there are others that are a little bit easier. With a lot of patients who've had chemo uh, or cancer treatment in general, there is... So that would include pelvic radiation. And that includes pelvic radiation. Pelvic radiation is a big one. It, it is very hard to avoid the damaging effects of pelvic radiation, not only on the ovaries, but also on the uterus. And so that's that's kind of a separate... The uterine part's a separate conversation mm-hmm. with radiation, but there's no coming back for, from it. And we do notice that there's an increase in cellular aging in patients who've had those kind of therapies. And so it's not just necessarily the eggs, it's it's everything. I mean, when you look at those survivorship clinics, they're, they're focusing on, you know, diseases more commonly associated with age at much younger ages in those patients. But that's one of those unavoidable ones. You know, usually if someone is offering you one of the really gonadotoxic, meaning going to kill everything in the ovary type therapies, it's because you need it. And it's the best one, you know, yeah. transplants where they have to knock out everything. Like, those will just about 100% kill your egg supply. Pelvic radiation directly to the ovarian uterine area, that's going to kill everything. And we're grateful because you're here and we can always have the conversation about you know donor eggs and other options. But um, that and not ends- all chemotherapies are going to have that significant effect, but there are definitely some that will. Right. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of the can we see a lot of different cancers, unfortunately, in young women, but breast cancer is one of the more common ones. And most of the treatments used with breast cancer, it depends a little bit, but most most of those treatments can be pretty damaging to the eggs. And so if we can get somebody before they get chemo, and that's the key, before they get chemo, and if we have time to freeze eggs, then those eggs are frozen in time. And, and fortunately, we can use those in the future, um, even after somebody's been you know, cured from breast cancer or whatever cancer they're being treated for. 
Absolutely. And one last thing on chemo, I saw an article and it was saying that for every month of chemo somebody gets, it decreases their reproductive span by about a span by about a year. And so one other thing to think about is if you were unfortunate to get breast cancer at a really young age and say you did get chemo or radiation or say you got some sort of treatment that you were able to come back from. Say you started you know, two or three months, two or three years later, you started ovulating, have regular cycles, you can still get pregnant on your own, but just know that your reproductive lifespan is going to be a whole bunch shorter than somebody else your age. So, you know, once your oncologist says it's safe for you to get pregnant, really think about trying to get pregnant pretty quickly because you just, you may go through menopause at 35 or 40. You know, Or creating you embryos for you to use later. Yeah, because you may, may not have the same length of time to wait to try and have another child if that's your choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what are some other what we call I- iatrogenic, so caused by a physician, <laughs> um, causes of diminished ovarian reserve? Surgeries. Surgery. What types of surgeries? So a couple different categories. Endometriosis surgeries are probably the biggest one because you've got these huge endometriomas, so uh, endometriosis-related ovarian cysts that have the potential to cause big-time problems and people get surgery to remove them. In the process of removing them, no matter how amazeballs your surgeon is, you are going to have ovarian cortex removed, which is going to take some eggs away. Um, Oftentimes, they're doing ablations as well, which means using heat cautery laser of some sort to get rid of spots of endometriosis on the ovaries, which is also going to decrease it. The other types of surgery that we see are are other ovarian surgeries. So for example, someone had a torsion where their ovary twisted, cut off its own blood supply, and it had to get removed because it had died. Um, That's a big one. You know, other other forms of cysts in the ovaries that needed to come out, whether they are cancerous or not cancerous or had malignant potential where they're fine now, but they need to get out before they cause problems. All of those things inherently damage the ovarian cortex, which is where all of your eggs are located. And that can diminish your ovarian supply. And generally, you don't have a whole lot of choice in doing those. Um, yeah. You know, endometriosis is is kind of the one thing in there where you may get a little bit more choice, maybe in the operative word, because you can say, well, let's freeze eggs before I do all these surgeries. But even then, if you've got huge endometriomas, our stems don't work as well. And we don't want to puncture that thing when we go in. And even, even the best you know, technicians can't always avoid it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So as a side note, that's another reason to think about if you have endometriosis and you're even if you're young, that's a good reason to try and do more aggressive therapy more quickly because you just don't know how much longer you're going to go without having to have a surgery or maybe even a more definitive surgery where most or all of your ovary, one or both are removed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And sometimes people can be born with only one ovary, but that does happen. That does happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So... Are there other health conditions that someone may have that might predispose them or have some relationship to diminished ovarian reserve? Well, I know with rheum- patients with rheumatoid arthritis sometimes have to be controlled with a medicine called methotrexate. And so sometimes sometimes you can be on chemotherapy for reasons other than cancer. So that would sort of be in our chemotherapy group as well. Mm-hmm. So the one thing I'm thinking of is people with autoimmune conditions. So there's lots of autoimmune conditions, including rheumatoid arthritis, but you could have ulcerative colitis or you could have celiac or Hashimoto's or anything like that. If your body is known to attack a part of itself, which is what an autoimmune condition is, 
Um, having some diminished ovarian reserve where your body might have attacked your ovaries is, is not a completely unheard of thing. So if you have any autoimmune conditions, being aware of what your ovarian reserve is, is, is often important. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. So can you all think of anything else that is relatively mainstream for causing diminished ovarian reserve? You know, environmental, uh, you know, and I don't have great data on this, but I think if you're in an environment where you live in a really polluted environment, um, there can be there can be some exposure issues with different environmental pollutants and pollutants in your ovaries. It's kind of like smoking, too, because smoking not just has nicotine, but there's a lot of other pollutants that potentially could do damage. So um, I think if you're, you know, it's kind of one of those things, it is what it is. But if you're in an environment where there's a lot of pollution, I think that can make a difference as well. Absolutely. Um, alcohol, probably not a real good idea. Um, and and I haven't seen any really quantitative data that says if you have had X drinks in your life, you are going to have worse ovarian reserve than the next guy. Or if you drink one glass a night versus binging heavily on the weekends, this is what makes a difference. Now, I would say the majority of our patients at some point in their lives have had alcohol, whether it was a lot in college or along the way, just a little bit steady amounts. Um, so it's hard to say exactly what it is. We all have patients who are teetotal who have never had anything to drink. And so I don't know that we can really pin this down, but certainly while you're going through treatment, we like you to stop because it's we don't think it's helping anything. May or may not be hurting, but it's unlikely to be real helpful. I would say well, people who have used illicit drugs, such as things like cocaine and meth, yeah. they definitely have an effect on how their ovaries function later on. Again, you know, once you've gotten clean and had a good amount of time with sobriety, it doesn't mean you can't have a healthy pregnancy. But I've definitely seen people who... There was nothing else in their history with the exception of illicit drug use um, and of, you know, big time stuff, things like cocaine and meth that um, would cause issues. And we do also think that this may be somewhat genetic. I mean, some people may be born with a higher pool of eggs or lower pool of eggs. Just had a person this week who came in and she was in her early 30s and she mentioned that she found out she had diminished ovarian reserve, pretty low AMH number for somebody in her age group. And after the fact, she talked to her mom and her mom said, oh yeah, I went through menopause when I was 38 or something, which is a really early time to go through menopause. So, you know, it's always wise as you embark on the fertility journey to, if you, if your mom's still around and you can talk to her, it's ideal, ideal to ask her, you know, what age were you when you went through menopause? And the average age is about 50 or 51. So if she was younger than that, if she went through menopause in her early 40s or started having hot flashes. Not due to surgery. Not due to not surgery. Not due to surgery. Yeah, that should be a red flag to you that, gosh, if that happened to her, that it's not uncommon to happen to daughters of moms, you know, so the similar age when you typically go through menopause. And so, you know, that would be a reason to kind of do things a lot quicker because it suggests that your ovarian reserve may dim diminish as quickly as hers, potentially. Yeah, and, and along that kind of family tree line, we there are some chromosome abnormalities um, that can happen specifically with the X chromosome. Mm -hmm. um, that can't, you can, it can be something you inherited, um, whether it's something that we can see on a karyotype that's looking at how many chromosomes you have and that type of thing, or looking on a carrier screen for something called um, Fragile X, which if you are a pre-mutation carrier, which means that you have, you're not, your number of what are called CGG repeats on that chromosome, it's not a normal number and it's not a truly abnormal number, but if it's 
somewhere in between. Um, those somewhere in between numbers can um, make it harder. It can diminish your ovarian reserve, make it harder for you to get pregnant, um, and in certain cases can potentially increase the risk of something called fragile X syndrome, which is, I believe, the most common cause of developmental delay. Mm-hmm. So. I think that's right. Um, yeah. Certainly anyone who has Perner syndrome. Yes. Um, genetic, you cannot control that. There's something called mosaic Turner syndrome where mm-hmm. part of your chromosomes are abnormal and the other part's normal. And so those people often are ovulatory, but they have a much higher rate of miscarriages and, and diminished ovarian reserve at early ages. Um, another genetic condition that is one of the more common ones for causing this is galactosemia. Um, and, and that can cause it as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we we covered a lot of causes. And I think (laughs) for the most part, um, the message is there's a few things you can control, but the vast majority of them, unfortunately, you can't. Okay. So the best thing is go see your reproductive endocrinologist, get the help now, sooner than later. Time is not your friend. Fair? That's fair. All right. Good stuff. So to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Um, don't forget about our conference that is coming up October 28th, 2023 in New Braunfels, my hometown, right between San Antonio and Austin. We're going to talk about everything fertility related. We'll be speaking. We'll have some amazing speakers come in. Um, we're going to be up and moving and having a great time all day long and we can't wait to see you. So follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube and stay updated with all things fertility. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered anonymously on the Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. We want to know what you're hearing. And uh, you can also access information about the conference on our website. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment. It's not a substitute for medical advice. We look forward to hearing from you and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Today's episode was brought to you by A-Life Health. Whether you're currently going through IVF or looking to create a digital record, the A-Life app can help you stay organized, informed, and empowered throughout the entire IVF journey. Download the A-Life app today, now available on the Apple App Store.